today on my podcast, If It Matters, I sat down with Dr. Eric Crampton. Dr. Eric Crampton's career highlight was a time he spent at George Mason University getting to know people like Tyler Cohen and other outstanding individuals. One of the people that Eric Crampton met throughout his career was a gentleman, David Levy, who taught him the theory of economic thought. David Levy has written a book, How the Dismal Science Got Its Name, and Eric recommended the book to me. I read it, and we discussed that book. We discussed slavery, we discussed prostitution, we discussed the great chain of being. We end up in all sorts of uh, different cul-de-sacs, and we even uh, throw some shade on the environmental movement. Fascinating discussion. Excellent book. I hope you enjoy it. Hi, I'm here today on my podcast, Different Matters, with Dr. Eric Crampton. Um, Now, at the end of last year, I was in your office and I was saying, hey, you're an economist, you've got some good stuff, let's discuss a book. And the book you recommended to me was How the Dismal Science Got Its Name by David M. Levy, which you told me David Levy was your, he taught you the history of economic thought. Uh, Yes, he was one of my profs in grad school. And this is a fascinating topic, unbelievably badly told. I started reading this book on the plane to Japan. I saw your tweet. With no Wi-Fi. And it was incomprehensible. When I finally got to Japan and I was able to use Wikipedia, the book started to make sense. Levy makes heroic assumptions about his audience. It's one of those cases where reading can really be augmented by having a chat GPT as your sidekick. So there was a wonderful podcast with Tyler Cowan where he's talking about how he uses GPT and it's often reading through a book, having this open on the side and just whenever he's hitting something he doesn't quite know, asking the question in there and it comes all up. All right. So the premise of the book is how the dismal science got its name. Now, we're going to discuss where that comes from, but... Levy makes an assumption how most people believe we understand where the name come from. So let's start with the beginning assumption. What do most people think the dismal science refers to? That depends how sophisticated the person is. Sometimes it's just meant as an insult towards economists saying that we tend to be dismal and gloomy and always predicting bad times. And, oh, well, if you want less inflation, you're going to have to have more unemployment and terrible economists wanting to like flog people until they're behaving the way that the economy needs. That's one level, and it's wrong. The next level up, which is also wrong, but a little more grounded, tends to go back to uh, Malthus and the Iron Law of Wages. So for millennia, basically, whenever people became more productive and industry became more productive or agricultural output increased, family sizes would increase. So fewer children would die, people would live a little bit longer, people would have more children, until you got up to the point where everybody was up to a subsistence level again, because population growth would outpace productivity until you got back to that level and it just sort of naturally equilibrated. Whenever living standards were above subsistence, people had more kids. Whenever they were below subsistence, you had famines and population tended to be around the level consistent with just bare subsistence. Malthus called this the iron law of wages. That's the more typical explanation that's given for why economists are are the dismal science, the iron law of wages, which says we can never really get above subsistence. Of course, it is stopping to be true 
at the point that Malthus was writing it. That's when productivity really started picking okay. up. So, but so that, that's, that's the usual story. That's how most people, and if you had asked me in November, that's probably where I would have landed. It's not correct. And the stunning thing about where the name came from is that the economists are the good guys. Who was Thomas Carlyle? Because he is the guy that comes up with the name. Who was Thomas Carlyle? Thomas Carlyle was an incredibly influential English essayist, uh, political commentator, and harsh critic of economics. He was a defender of poetry, the arts, against economists and others of their ilk. So a lot of people now, if they'd be looking him up, they'd be seeing criticisms of economics. Other bits they might not notice because those don't get played up quite as much, but the perceived humanitarian against these miserable economists. He wrote a publication, 1848. Yes. And this is what kicked it off, a discourse on the Negro question. So a bit of background is important here. So we had the Emancipation Act of 1833, and this is where the British Empire eradicated. So slavery had always been outlawed effectively in England itself. Legal cases had resolved that. But now we have a situation where the empire wants to eradicate slavery inside its jurisdiction, and they came up with an economically brilliant idea, we're just going to pay £20 million to the slaveholders to get rid of slavery, which I think is brilliant, much easier than a civil war, which is what the Americans ended up doing. Uh, in 1848, slavery was still very big in the United States. Slavery wasn't uh, immediately abolished. It, there was actually, was it seven or years uh, apprenticeship effectively? It was, it was phased out. Yeah, I think that they brought forward the phase out from what it was, what it was initially meant to be because there was, it was just too objectionable. But yeah, there, there was a phase out. And it was in this environment that John Stuart Mill was writing some of his ideas. So before we write about what Carlyle was objecting to, John Stuart Mill's father, James Stuart, he was a utilitarian. Mm -hmm. Would you describe his son as a utilitarian as well? Mill was a complex guy, uh, part utilitarian, parts rights-based, but on the side of getting rid of slavery and favoring paying 20 million pounds rather than continuing to have it. Now, the book talks about narrow and, and wide utilitarianism, but the idea of utilitarianism is we, we, we maximize the utility for the, for the greatest number of people. Mill is writing, and his view, which he inherited from Smith, correct me if I'm wrong, is that all people are fundamentally equal, and the reason why there are different outcomes in human affairs is because I think it was Smith who described as the 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 culture and the background and the opportunities that some people have resulted in, in, a, in a different outcome. And this, this seemed to flow through to Mill as well. And so when Mill is looking at slavery, he is saying slavery is wrong because a black person is as much a person as a white person. Is yeah. that a fair description? Yeah, and that contrasted with some of the views then from Carlisle, uh, where it, it, it's really weird. So in that period, the poets and the essayists, the literary style people, they were committed to the view that some races were subhuman and that they could only be made human by forcing them 
to do human-like things. And if you go to Smith again, uh, man has the propensity to truck, barter, and trade. Now, if somebody decides that they don't want to trade their labor Mm -hmm. for a very small amount of wages for Smith or for Mill, that would be evidence that the trade wasn't worthwhile, that the wages on offer didn't meet a reservation price. Why would you work for for a pittance when you could decide not to? For Ruskin Carlisle types, it was evidence that blacks were not quite human yet and needed to learn the doctrine of labor and to be made human through what they considered the beneficent lash. And they were looking to the Caribbean where slavery had been abolished and so slavery would have been abolished effectively 10, 15 years at this point. And they, they were talking about, was it pumpkins? Yes. So they, they were looking and they were saying that the Negroes in, I'm sure it was Jamaica or the yes. Caribbean generally, they would only work enough in order to get enough pumpkins to make themselves content, which if there's nothing to spend your money on, it's a potentially a, an, an obviously rational labour leisure trade-off. And I'm not too sure that they were basing that examination on legitimate facts. But what I thought was really interesting was that the mill side of the equation was they were saying the solution was, and I think Carlyle had a valid criticism here, that they were saying, well, well, the problem is that the pumpkin is too cheap. So the solution, the economic solution is just bring in more black people, which will push up the price of pumpkins, demand and supply, and then they would have to work longer to get the same amount of pumpkins. And I may be misreading it, but it seemed to me that that was part of the the criticism that Carla was using against the economists. It seemed kind of worse than that, just that pumpkins basically would grow freely in Jamaica. You scatter the seeds on the ground. You hardly had to do any labor to get as much food as you needed. And so you'd never be able to get people to agree to work for labor if they're Alternative was to just sit around and pumpkins would show up. Right? Unless there were so many people that you had to run, you had to run out of pumpkins, forcing the Africans to work. One option, I think, that their preferred one was the maintenance of slavery. Well, that so. was that was how that was Carlisle's. So Carlisle was saying, "Hold on, your idea of just importing a whole bunch of new Africans is idiotic when we can use slavery." That was Carlisle's argument. Well, I don't as think, I understood it. Well. I didn't see Mill there as arguing that you needed to have a lot more people show up in Jamaica to bid up the price of pumpkins. It was more that if people are unwilling to trade their labor for the wages that are on offer, don't blame the existence of ready supply of pumpkins for causing a uh, fairly high reservation wage. Instead, just look at the, uh, that people are unwilling to trade at those prices means that the trade cannot have been in their mutual interest. Exactly, and that, w- that would have been, um, according to, Levy had a note somewhere, I think, that said that somebody, it might not be Mill, was, was making that exact argument to bring more Africans. So I'm not too sure whether um, Carlyle was arguing against a real argument that had been put forward. It was a little bit unclear in the book, or whether he was arguing against his version of what a rational economic argument would have been. But nonetheless, Carlyle's response to this was the beneficial use of the, of, of the lash. Yeah. His, his version of it, the, the beneficial use of it, and that was how you're going to create people. But then 
who goes further, or might have been Ruskin that, that, that went here, what happens if the beneficial last doesn't produce the, out, the desired outcome? What was his solution? You're going to have to refresh my memory on that one. Genocide. Well, yeah. The solution was to kill them. Oh, my God. These people are just so awful. Um, oh, yeah. I remember that. There's a bit of a rhetorical flourish in one of those essays, wasn't it? Um, Pretty objectionable one. Yeah. <laughs> these people are just awful. However, uh, the occasional discourse on the Negro question uh, published in uh, 1848 or 1849. 1848. The 1849 one was published in the United States under a more uh, objectionable title. <laughs> they changed the, they, the... The two, the second one, where he uses a different word other than Negro, um, it was different. Um, there, there were differences between the two. But, but what... This is really weird. So Carlyle has this convoluted scheme whereby he's writing as if there was this opinion that had been left behind in some hotel room and this is somebody's view and it, the whole thing was weird. But anyway, putting all that aside, um, I'm going to read out the, 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 the critical sentence, right? So um, before we start, extra hall philanthropy is, mm-hmm. would that, you describe that as the religious do-gooders for lack of a yeah. better word? So the mo- there was a movie based on this, right? So Wilberforce. Wow. So the abolition of slavery in England and then to the empire in current discourse now centers on what, what, what are called the Exeter Hall philanthropists. So it was the Christians who saw as an abomination in the face of God that am I not a man and brother, that image of a slave. This is Wilberforce's um, argument. Yeah. But Ruskin Carlyle would talk about the alliance between Exeter Hall philanthropists who made this moral case and the political economists who were making the exchange-based arguments and sort of analytical egalitarian arguments. And, and, and gay science refers to poetry, so far as I can tell. Yep. So this is what Carlyle writes, and this is the first use According to Levy, and I'm sure he's done his research, he's <laughs> so much research. Um, this is the first, and Wikipedia agrees with him, so he must be right. This is the first use of the term dismal, dismal science in 1848-1849. Truly, my philanthropic friends, Exeter Hall philanthropy is wonderful, and the social science, not a gay science, but a, but a rueful, which finds the secrets of this universe in supply and demand and reduces the duty of human governors to that of letting man alone is also wonderful. Not a gay science, I should say, like some have, like some we have heard of. No, a dreary, desolate, and indeed quite abject and distressing one that we might call, by way of eminence, the dismal science. These two, extra hall philanthropy and the dismal science, led by any sacred curse of black emancipation or the like to fall in love and make a wedding of it, will give birth to progenies and progenies, dark extensive moon canes, unmentionable abortions, wide-coiled monstrosities such as the world has not seen hitherto. You've got to read that a couple of times to figure out what he's saying, but uh, Christ, yeah. it's awful. Uh, especially if you... Dark aboard of moon calves, if I remember right. Um, it's also all drawing on tropes about the um, harms of what was then called miscegenation or the mixing of races. They yep. imagined that the progeny thereof would be defective and very bad in a lot of ways. And here he's drawing the same analogy then to Exeter Hall philanthropy combining with political economy 
being as bad a miscegenation as black-white couples, which they, he thought should be illegal, right? It's, it's a pretty terrible view, but this is the one that's considered now, well, it's the gay sciences of poetry, and uh, if you read Dickens, he dedicates Bleak House to uh, the genius of Thomas Carlyle. Um, had, it was Hard Times, was Hard it? Times, that's the one. Um, <laughs> so, on the one, now, there was a whole series of debate or not, debates is the wrong word, uh, there was back and forth between uh, John Stuart Mill and Carlyle. Now, Thomas Carlyle was, he, he was influential, he was highly regarded. This line of argument, though, came at a cost for him. Whilst there was a lot of support, he also suffered some loss of favour as, um, as a result. He also went to the United States and Mill or somebody criticised Carlyle because he said that Carlyle was providing an honest justification for slavery to the pre-Civil War slave holders that, in Mill's view, I'm sure it was Mill who was making this criticism, that they were not entitled to. So Carlyle was a disinterested in terms of economically. He was disinterested in, in uh, the outcome of slavery, which made his views have more currency, I guess, would, would have been the, uh, the argument. There was a side discussion on prostitution. Yes. Which I thought was amazing, outrageous. Okay, so apparently, I'm sure this is not true, apparently there was a lack of prostitution in the um, pre-Reconstruction South. Or there was less of it than you would have expected. So uh, Levy goes through the arguments on this um, and some of the discussion by novelists at the time. Now, among the many horrors of slavery is that was that the owners of slaves viewed that they had uh, a right to compel sexual services from the people that they owned. Yes. Now, if you're in a place that has that kind of a norm, you might expect that prostitution would not be as observed because those who would be hiring such services instead have purchased people. For that purpose. Well, as one of many purposes, like somebody who's providing domestic assistance could also be providing those. Like it's all just horrible, horrible, awful stuff. But but you get into this, it's like how how can you be trying to justify slavery on the basis that you get less prostitution if one of the awful parts of that relationship is that it is compelled sexual servitude rather than like well, New Zealand has legal sex work. Nobody's forced into it. Willing buyers, willing sellers. People are protected under the law. That seems an awful lot less objectionable to being born into that arrangement. Like, my God. Well, so the, so the argument was that there was something inherent in the nature of slavery that resulted in a, in a, in a more moral and virtuous um, society. Uh, and it was um, Harriet Martineau. Yes, Martineau. Um, so Harriet Martineau, and so she was a contemporary, and yep. she she was saying, "No, you, you're misreading the situation, um, and that what's happening is that the market for prostitution has been satisfied by the fact that the slave owners have access to the property uh, sexually." Although, you know, I mean, my mind just went one step back. That would be like doesn't make sense. I mean, married men use prostitutes just because you have the right to purchase. You know this the whole the whole thing. I've, I was kind of 
almost in my mind yelling at Levy, you know, go one step further. There must be, I don't think either of those arguments explained why there was a lack of prostitution in the South. There must have been some third, because neither of those two arguments seem particularly compelling to me. Well, it's more that if you've got, if a large number of the people who would otherwise be hiring the services of prostitutes happen to own slaves and believe that they can, comp- well, actually can compel the provision of sexual services, they're not going to be going out to find a brothel, are No, they? I think they would, because the things that drive people to, to visit prostitutes is not usually a lack of the ability to obtain sex. It's variety, it's novelty, it's whatever else. I haven't gone to the psychology of prostitution. But married men use prostitutes, despite yes. the fact that they've, they've got access to, to, to sex at home. Um, so if you have access to a slave then, okay, that's that's great. You might still... And not everybody was a slave owner. So in my mind, I was thinking, we're off topic. What, if, if, if there was a lack of prostitution in the South, which frankly I don't believe, there must have been some third driver. Of I only really that. read this as a ceteris paribus thing, that there would be less of it than you otherwise would have expected as compared oh, yeah, to comparable yeah, places. Sure. Some, of the, some of the demand for such services would have been shunted off into... The compelled arrangements, this is also horrible. Um, <laughs> um, so let's uh, come back from, from that discourse, fascinating though it is. So the the debate between Mill and uh, Carlisle, and so Mill has some great response, um, 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 but one of the ones I like is um, Mill's pushing back, saying, this wasn't directly at Carlisle necessarily, it was part of the debate, of all vulgar modes of escaping from the consideration of the effect of social and moral influences on the human mind, the most vulgar is that of attributing the diversities of conduct and character to inherent natural differences. That is an incredibly progressive view from nearly 200 uh, 200 years ago, And and it's brilliant. Yeah, and Levy talks about a brief detour that economics had in the late 1800s, early 1900s, where they didn't quite follow Mill as they should have, but it is what you see now, right? That standard drill in econ modeling is that you assume people are basically the same, that they face different constraints, and that they respond to the constraints that they face. Yeah, and it was it was really interesting to go back and, and, and look at this stuff Um so Mill was drawing to an extent on uh, Adam Smith, and again, one of the quotes that, that Levy pulls out from Adam Smith, the great Adam Smith, the difference between the most dissimilar characters between a philosopher and a common street porter, for example, seemed to arise not so much from nature as from habit, custom, and education. Uh, let's talk very quickly, the great chain of being. So the great chain of being was the idea, it was a religious Christian idea that you had uh, God oh, at the yeah. top and rocks at the bottom, and uh, and that there was a natural hierarchy in that. Yeah, a natural hierarchy. Yep. And and in a sense, Mill and Carlyle had different views about. Yeah. So Mill and Carlyle possibly was Mill religious? No. No. Okay. The great chain of being around this time would have been in active currency. People believed it. And so if you think of the great chain of being as that all human beings are on an equal level, right, below angels yep. but above cats, um, uh, and that would have been the Mill view yep. of the world and the Smith view of the world, Carlyle, I mean, we haven't really discussed Ruskin, but we should, 
um, would have whites at a higher level and then the Irish. Because the Irish got a lot of beating here. And then several rungs down would have been the Africans. And so if you... If that's the way you think, you can understand how Carlyle would have got there. From our perspective, looking back, Carlyle's views are an abomination. But presumably Carlyle believed what he was saying. He wasn't trolling. He suffered a price for his beliefs. He must have genuinely believed this. Yes, Carlyle genuinely believed that there was a hierarchy of races, that some were inferior and that the only potential for lower races to be fully human was by being forced to through violence. But see, this, this, this strikes me as an inconsistency, because if you believe that one race is inherently genetic... Well, that, that's I mean, why it works for him, right? He believes that if he thinks that whites are better and will always be better masters, then you can trust them to be the better masters and to only use the lash beneficently to only use it for the education purposes to, to help people well, this, become better. This was, like, it's awful, but... Well, this was the argument of, um, about the horse. The argument was that um, horses in England were always perfectly t- turned out, um, and this was evidence that the owners of, of horses or animals acting in the, in the owner's interest would not beat the horses. Um, um, but then Mill goes back and refers to a comment by Adam Smith saying that people um, uh, sometimes would hurt others just for the sheer pleasure of it, and that if you're a feudal lord or some such, that you're, you're, not, acting, you're not acting economically. You have, a, you have a right to hurt and humiliate, and so you do. And this was an argument that, that Smith was pulled out. So there's a, um, I thought that was an, an interesting digression. But, and there's also the robustness argument, right? So Levy gets into that a little bit later. And one of the reasons that it can be a bit challenging to read through his stuff is that he's a, a theoretical econometrician. He, he lost me so much at the end. Well, he's a theoretical econometrician who is also a history of economic thought scholar who's done tremendous work in that. He's like distinguished fellow of the society and stuff. But he thinks in terms of econometric arguments often. And one of those would be kind of robustness. So the literary analogy that he then draws in the book is, well, draw, drawing from literature where they're saying, okay, let's uh, kind of imagine the best case scenario. Will that always hold? So he puts up the, the excerpt, I think it was from Uncle Tob's Cabin, yeah. where the slave who admittedly has a superb master by construct in the book still wants his freedom and is asked why. And the paraphrased upshot of it is, I've got no guarantee of who my next master would be, and that next one could be evil. So that's a robustness argument that, like, even if you could take a Carlisle best case that you've got some near-angelic white master who is trying to do everything for the best of... um, in the best interests of their slaves, trying to make them fully human in the fullness of time. Like, sorry, it, it's. I have trouble saying this stuff. Um, no, I, I'm, I understand. But so the next one might not be so nice. Levy has a nice little diagram. Um, I just want to duck back. So, because there appears to be an inconsistency in Carlyle's and Ruskin's worldview. So, on the one hand, they are saying, I should say, Mill appears to be implying that they are saying that there is nature difference, an inherent genetic difference between Africans and whites. Uh, I, I didn't actually pick that Carlisle exactly said that, but he got pretty close. 
But if that was if that was Carlyle's belief, and it seemed to be, even though I didn't see him say it exactly. And at the same time, he is saying that in order for these Africans to to, to reach full humanity, you know, the, the beneficial use of the lash, but but that's never going to work if there is an inherent difference. I can beat my dog as much as my like. He's never going to do calculus. So there's a either he's been disingenuous and he doesn't really believe what he's saying. Or he he does, and there's an inherent inconsistency. Yeah, there could be a bit of an inconsistency there. It it seemed more that people, well, yeah, in Carlyle's view, there you could be trained out of it, but it might take some time. But that generations. But that implies yeah. that the underlying genetic difference. Um, when when did when was Darwin? Oh, Darwin was a contemporary of Smith. Right. Okay. So the, so the so the a little evo- bit later. So the evolution stuff was already there. So so the the, the evolution stuff would have already been there. So the but you're not going to, if, if Carlyle's view is that there is inherent genetic differences between the races, then you're never going to get the inferior race up to the level of the of the superior race. And so he's 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 lying. I mean, it's his whole rationale is um, is dishonest. Oh, sorry, I just wanted to double check. Darwin was later, 1859. Uh, right. Okay. So right. not contemporary, not contemporary of Smith. Drew on Smith. Um, Okay. Now, d- d- genetics was not developed yet at that point. Darwin's stuff, evolution of the species, you were still having other theories on what traits can wind up being heritable, whether it's purely passed down from genes or if things that you have learned get passed along. Like, nothing was really, really set yet, right? So if in that pre-scientific view of how all of this works traits that you develop over your lifetime can be passed down, then maybe you could get consistency that way. I, I'm, I'm purely yeah, yeah. speculating here, right? No, I, I'm a, when, I was re- when I was reading the Carlisle stuff, uh, I was thinking this, this, this is not internally uh, consistent. Um, although, to be fair to Carlisle, I don't know why should be fair to Carlisle, it's horrible, but, but um, he, he didn't seem to say, Mill Mill was implying, or Mill stated that Carlyle was saying that the the difference was nature, and I I'm, I didn't quite pick that that Carlyle said exactly that. So there maybe wasn't. A, but let's look at the Irish. So this is this is the utilitarian stuff, right? So Carlyle was saying, look at the Irish; they're free and they're starving. The Africans and the the Africans who are enslaved are not starving. And I don't think Mill had a good response to that. I can think of a good response, but um, and the, the question would be, would, would, would the starving and, and uh, would the Irish who were starving, would they have voluntarily entered slavery? I think the answer is no. There are other policy changes you could have looked at. No, for, no, no, for, for example, like tariffs on corn. No, no, no. But, 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 but if, you're, if, you're, if you're an Irishman, and you're and you maybe if you're on the very verge of death, okay, all right, slavery might be an option. But if you're if you're an Irishman and you are facing the possibility of starvation, would would you voluntarily choose slavery as a means by which to 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 reduce the prospect of slavery? And I think the answer is no, which is which is an anti. Which well, there's is a different ut- option that was actually real and came up, right? So a lot of the way that European migrants covered their passage to the Americas was by committing to provide several years of labor at a fixed rate to the person who paid their passage. It's called indentured servitude. It came for a period, a fixed period. 
people have problems with that kind of an arrangement. But if you're trying to cover the fixed cost of moving to a much better life and you've got limited access to credit, because who's going to loan you money for that when you're now overseas and how the heck could that even be collected? Well, I thought it was, I thought it was, it but, was, it was, in, it was interesting the way that uh, Carlisle um, tried to use the utilitarian argument against, uh, and I, I thought, I thought that was clever. Well, you could actually. try doing that, but you also have to, well, how is that even feasible, right? Ireland was not starving for want of slave owners. Ireland was starving because of potato blight. No, no, no. Ignore, ignore, ignore the, the, what was causing the famine. Just look at it from, so Carlyle was saying that freedom was not necessarily, actually freedom was wrong because the Irish weren't necessarily free in that sense, but they, they, they were not mm-hmm. slaves. And so he was saying, oh, <clears throat> so... The Irish, who in, in his uh, chain of being would have been below the um, the English but above the Africans, he was saying that they were free, but their life was terrible. Um, and 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 as a result, a beneficial slave a beneficial slave owner would have treated their slaves. The life of a slave in Jamaica would have been um, better. But the response to that would be, okay, that's that's cool. But would the would the Irishman facing the prospect of starvation have chosen slavery? And I think the answer is no, um, which which undoes the. Um, that argument, but I thought it was it was it was an interesting uh, well. A lot of what they were trying to do was to draw an analogy between work for market wages and slavery. What do you mean by that? They saw it as very equivalent to slavery, but not as good as slavery. So this is the this is the white slavery argument. So now now we're coming into Ruskin. Um, so Ruskin was was he was a contemporary, but he was a younger contemporary of Carlyle. He was. Uh, was a bit of a literary critic and did some interesting stuff and loved art and stuff. Um, yeah, a lot of art criticism. Yeah, <laughs> just another reason to distrust the arts. Um, uh, and and there's a whole digression, but I didn't. Ruskin seemed to be very important to Levy. He didn't strike me as being that significant. I thought Carlyle was was by far the more influential here. Just that Ruskin carried on the story a bit, I guess. Yeah, and Ruskin shows up in the Cope's Tobacco pamphlet. The cover of the book has a white-bearded man as a knight on a on a ho- black charger, and he's skewering someone who's holding an Adam Smith book, and it's meant to be Ruskin on the charger, who's defending the world for the gay, the gay sciences against the dismal science. And the first twenty percent of this book is Levy unpicking all of that, and I haven't spoken about it because I just, I just wish he'd taken that first twenty percent of it out. Anyway, um, there's another thing that happened at the same time, and that is the Morton Bay Rebellion in Jamaica. And yes, <laughs> there are so many wonderful aspects of this. So, who is Governor Eyre? He was the governor of Jamaica after the emancipation of slaves. But where, where was it? Where was he before Jamaica? Do you remember that? Well, he'd done a bit of uh, touring around. Here, he was the governor of New Mun- Munster, which was Wellington and the South Island. I missed that. He was. Well, you had to go to Wikipedia to get that because it wasn't in the book. <laughs> That's a New Zealand connection. And Lake Eyre in Australia. That's him. Yeah. It's the I knew that part. I'd missed the New Zealand one. Anyway, he was governor of New Munster, um, and the next job he got was uh, uh, Jamaica. So, you know, sound the, sound the New Zealand relevance of Clacton. Okay, so he's in Jamaica. 
his 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 uh, governor there was a form of uh, wasn't wasn't proper democracy, but there was some local. Um, it was unclear to me how the Jamaica was being governed, but there were some blacks and some um, half caste blacks who had some position of of power and relevance. Then um, uh, uh, there was the Morton Bay Rebellion, um, and Eyre puts it down brutally, executes a couple of people. Um, uh, Now, this, for some bizarre reason, flows through and becomes a huge thing in England. So the question is, should... Um, and it was generally conceded that I think it was Gordon, one of the people he executed, he should not have done so. Yes, um, and they probably shouldn't have flogged so many people with piano wire either. <laughs> it was his behaviour. Um, Air's behaviour was shocking. I'm surprised he hasn't been cancelled and haven't changed the name of Lake Air. Then you, there was a, an attempt to charge him criminally and then civilly, and it failed on relatively narrow legal grounds. So the court ruled that what he did was legal in the place that he did it, being Jamaica, which is part of the empire, and therefore he could not be held accountable inside England. But it was interesting the way, and I think that was both on the civil and the criminal, I can't remember the details, but it was interesting the way that the various sides, Mill and Carla and mm-hmm. Ruskin, broke down on this. Yeah, so Mill was one of the ones leading the charge for there to be charges and for him to be held to account, and Carlisle and Ruskin and a few others that uh, Levy documents were running the fundraising for his defense. Uh, I, I think part of it was that those who had opposed the paying of the 20 millions in the first place saw it as, well, they didn't like it in the first place, and then they see that it leads to a rebellion anyway. It was all tied up as part of the same thing, that they would have said, well, we we told you this was a bad idea in the first place to buy out the slave owners, that it was only going to go badly, and look, we were right, it went badly, and the governor had to come in and do what was necessary. Again, all very objectionable, but that would have been, that would have fed into it, I think. Yeah, I think that, but it was it was interesting how that one thing became such a, a, a catalyst. And it was also interesting, the Mill and his contemporaries won. Carlisle and Ruskin lost. Um, but I think we, we, we don't appreciate the extent of the debate that was being held at the time. The number of people who were respectable people and people of influence who were, who were making these arguments and it's an enormous credit to the likes of Mill who was prepared to stand up there um, and push back and, um, and and make an argument. One of the one of the, the comments that Levy makes in his book and I, 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 I quote it because I really like it market egalitarianism which is Mill and stuff market egalitarianism is, is inconsistent with a slavery that gives one person the right to command another person's time uh, and that was simply something that Carlisle and Ruskin did not agree with, and it was a, it was a fundamental difference to the way um, uh, people um, saw life and saw the world. Uh, rational choice. Levy oops, Levy then goes on and 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 raises an in- interesting question: Why don't we know about this debate? Why do we not know today 
why do we think that the dismal science is a reference to the very nature of people who are economists or a critique on Thomas um, Malthus? Why has this been memory hold? Yeah, it's a fun argument. So he talks about how the extent to which our stories of what happened can diverge from what actually happened depends on how far, how, how distant we are from the events. So you're always constrained by the facts that can still be in living memory that people might still have some command over. And nobody remembers the 1860s, right? Uh, you would have to deliver. The, Amer- the Americans do. You remember parts of it, yeah. <laughs> Um, I won't shut up about it. Yeah, but I'm suspecting that a lot of the names that have come up here aren't particularly familiar to people. And even now, if you go, if you do a Google search for John Ruskin, you'll find lots of pages about his literary criticism. You'll find the Ruskin Museum that talks about his influence on the arts. Uh, you'll occasionally see a minor allusion to. Um, controversial social positions, but it's not really developed. Uh, certainly not. He helped lead the fundraising campaign for the governor who ordered that pregnant women be flogged with piano wire during a rebellion. Uh, that part th- doesn't get mentioned. It, it's a bit weird. Well, Ruskin has, sorry, uh, Levy has a, a theory. He, so he, he comes down to rational choice theory. Um, maximizing personal advantage. So if you want to critique market capitalism, if you want to critique neoclassical economists, Carlyle and we need to talk about Dickens, but Carlyle and Dickens are really powerful people to show that a wage slave is exactly that. that there is something in it dehumanizing about a market capitalist economy. And if that's the case, you don't really want to have to acknowledge Carlyle's racism. If you're on the right, and I, I'm not sure I quite get agree with Carlyle, but if you're on the uh, on the right and you like some of what Carlyle is saying about a virtuous society and yeah. um, the, the the inherent decency of, of, of morality, uh, then again, it's not really in your interests to highlight the logical extension where, well, it's probably not a logical extension, but, the, but, but where Carlyle took that and which was logical in his mind. So there is an incentive by both sides to kind of just forget about it, um, uh, to, to memory hole that, and that's, that appears to be exactly what's uh, happening, and 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 the economics profession. I mean, I did a, I did four years of economics at university, um, and I was aware of the, t- the term decimal science. I was completely ignorant of this, um, this background in history. Yeah, I hadn't heard it either until I got to grad school, and probably then only because David was one of my t- teachers. <laughs> um, Dickens, hard times. Hard Times was, so we all know Dickens, Hard Times was, wasn't was one of his more popular uh, books. So Dickens is a social critic. He was very critical of the economic regime that was evolving around him. And Hard Times wasn't published initially as a book. It was published as a, in a, a, a serial. Mm-hmm. But he gives accreditation to Thomas Carlyle. Why? They, they had similar philosophies about how market exchange worked. 
and that appropriate social orderings weren't based on exchange, that they were more grounded in tradition and norms. Uh, and one of the bits that um, you'll see all, all over in, in Dickens, sort of notion that charity begins at home, that's not a pro-charity argument. That's an argument against giving money to end slavery in Jamaica, right? So where do you get that from, hard time? Isn't it Jellybee that says charity begins at home? Um, I can't remember. Le- Levy does um, uh, throw that in there, and then he makes some joke about it in there as well. With hard times, so hard times was was critical of the, the dehumanization that mm-hmm. capitalism, as it was evolving, was occurring. It wasn't. It wasn't a theme that was unique to, to hard times, and he dedicates it to, to Carlyle because in Dickens's mind, the economic enlightenment ideals that were driving the world that he was seeing them was resulting in things that he didn't like, mm-hmm. and so he preferred the natural order of things as he would have seen them. Yes, which is a pretty dark worldview from our perspective. We're not living in Dickens' world, so easy to criticize him from our perspective, I guess. But it is interesting that he dedicated that book to Carlyle because Dickens was, and he was involved in the um, defensive governor era as well. So he was deep in that world and we, we see Dickens now, he is interpreted as somebody who was a left-wing critic of the economic environment, but he wasn't a left-wing critic. He was a right-wing critic. Yeah, people always interpret the criticisms relative to the norm of their own time, right? So a good question is always, what's the counterfactual that they were arguing against? And for Dickens, it wasn't some egalitarian socialism. It was, well, it, it was that hierarchy with, Continued dependence on slavery abroad. The beneficial use of the lash. So this is what Carlyle writes in 1844. If thou do know better than I what is good and right, I conjecture thee in the name of God, force me to do it. Where it be by brass collars, whips and handcuffs, leave me not to walk over principles. Carlyle is saying, if you know better than me, or mm-hmm. I know better than you, what is in my interests, then force me to do it he would have fitted so well into the modern environmental movement, wouldn't he? This <laughs> yeah. Is, this, is well, an, this is an environmental yeah. argument. Well, it's it's more than that, right? It's whether we should be starting from a presumption of moral egalitarianism where we all have a similar moral worthiness and all bring something important to the table in democratic deliberation and in our own actions in market exchange, or whether there are actual natural betters who always know better and can be relied on to use that knowledge to beneficent purposes rather than malevolent ones, and who would never be corrupted by the opportunity to use such powers for whatever purposes, right? These people never change. And this this is why we're on the side of angels, because we are saying that Carlyle is wrong, that slavery was wrong, that, frankly, James Shaw and his cohort are fundamentally wrong as well, that, you know, okay, maybe you need a carbon tax, but you don't need the state to be going around and saying, well, you shouldn't be driving that car, you should drive something else. Let the, let, let the individual sort it out. There does appear to be a 
theme here um and but it makes it makes a certain sort of sense because I don't think Carlisle was necessarily dishonest. He may have been horrible, but if well, you if you believe because as I said, he he paid a price for his for his beliefs, and if you believe that slavery is in fact good for the people being enslaved, then that's where you get to, right? That's where you get to, but you also seem to have to be willfully blind of how the thing operates in practice and its consequences, right? You can, like, maybe you could hold that belief if you never left home and only think about these things in the abstract. Did did he leave home? I don't know enough about that. No, Le- uh, Levy didn't, because that's another thing. And um, Carlisle did seem to do a little bit of traveling in Europe, but I don't, I don't think he ever saw slavery first time. Although he did go to the United States, mm-hmm. and he must have seen in the South how it actually worked, unless he was going on some cultivated North Korea style. Tour, I, I don't know, um, but I I thought his main writings was that were ahead of that that trip though too. Right? Did he? He didn't. I don't think he he didn't recoil his views. Maybe he was too far in at that point. No. Uh, uh, I think we'll uh, we'll leave it there. It has. I'd add one little bit though. The book right. the book is pretty impenetrable. If you wanted a flavor of it, uh, David Levy and his co-author Sandra Pert had a wonderful series that get to the nub of the argument, and I've seen you drawing drawing from those pages as well, uh, over at EconLog. So EconLog, it's a website that um, Liberty Fund has maintained for ages, and the columns, I think, were from the early 2000s, circa 2001? 2001, yeah. Yeah. So those are all easily found online. Just search for Levy, Pert, how the dismal science got its name. And because it's a two decade old website, it's not the most user-friendly. If you want to get all the parts and you get part one, well, you just change the one to a two and then to a three in the URL because uh, they don't have the easy links, next chapter, next chapter all the time. Um, the, or even just Google or go to Wikipedia and the term dismal science, it's, it's, it's all there. Yep. Wikipedia has it. It is just remarkable that obviously we're both interested in, in, in economics. You've made a career of it. I'm kind of just a, a journeyman looking from the outside. But um, it is remarkable how that piece of history has just disappeared, even though the information is right there and so easy to yep. find. And it, from my side, like, the st- you always have to start with analytical egalitarianism as a starting point. And it's one of the things that raises my hackles when we get into sort of nanny state arguments that you're all, those always wind up starting off with an assumption that somebody else knows better than you do what is good for you and is consequently authorized to use the force of the state to make you a better person. Like there are echoes, like it's certainly... It, if anybody would take from this, oh, well, Crampton thinks that's as bad as slavery. Like, you're, you're just missing the point here. It's your basic model of the world and people. It isn't drawing an equivalence between these two things. One is obviously far worse than the other. But think about your premises and where they all lead you to. You probably want to be... St- it's more robust to start with the presumption that we're all the ones, each of us is best placed to make the decisions for ourselves because we know our circumstances better than anyone else. And the errors that you get to, if you've, if you've erred in that, they're going to be really small relative to the errors that you can find yourself in if you start from the opposite presumption. Because one of the things that struck me was there's a 
a Christian aspect, we don't talk about that, where, where there was a kind of a, um, Levy, sorry, Carlisle saw a coalition, and it was when I read out the sentence, yep. which used the term dismal science, a coalition between the extra hall philanthropists and the, and the, and the economists. Um, and there was that kind of that, Puritan's the wrong word, but but there was that kind of religious do-gooder aspect to it. And I do find that a lot when I rail against various government agencies and programs and you know who's who who should be able to do dentistry work well you the indi- you the citizen are not allowed to, to answer that question the state will be will decide who and the state will will decide the regime by which they go through and okay maybe maybe that's a good thing maybe that's a bad thing but but we never start with the pr- presumption that the individual should be able to choose that for themselves we start with a different presumption we start with the Carlisle presumption that the state in the first instance will make that decision and we never start with the with the with the Smith and Mill presumption and you go back and Smith was right all that time ago, his founding principles and basis was that every individual has the same inherent degree of humanity, and the and and the outcome that you see is not the result of a, of a inherent differences in nature. And I suspect that you know, if Smith would view well, even I mean, you know, there there is differences in in in, in nature inherent. You know, I guess some people are better at, at rugby and, and mass, but. But their their fundamental degree of humanity is 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 the same, and that person is the person who should decide. Oh, I'm really good at insolvency or writing or whatever it is. I I should be the one that chooses how I spend my time and my resources. It shouldn't be anybody else. Well, it gets to a different part of Adam Smith, right? The propensity for members of a single trade to gather together and then turn into a cartel, which then leads to a different kind of coalition, not the one that Levy was talking about, but one that Bruce Yandel talks about of bootleggers and Baptists, that you get particularly pernicious regulation when you've got those who would profit from it combined with those who morally believe in it and will provide that moral case for it. Um, is my own life as a, as a classic example of the dangers of uh, public choice. Okay, all right, we're we're, we're running, we're running over. Eric, uh, thank you very much. So the the one book I um I um, um I started to reread the theory of moral sentiments. We should uh, we should talk about that one. That is uh, uh, that is so underrated. However, we've run over time. Eric, thank you so much for introducing me to this book. It took me a lot longer than I had expected to read it, and I didn't even get really comprehend the last couple of uh, chapters um thanks so much we'll talk again soon sounds good thank you